Welcome to another episode of How to Sell Drugs, a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We're going to talk about how drugs should be sold in addition to how they are sold. And with us today is Richard Brent. Hi, Rich. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for being here. So uh, Rich is uh, a establishment owner. He owns a bar and restaurant very close to our office, very, very close to our office. And uh, so today we're uh, going to get a little bit of an inside scoop as far as how uh, operating a uh, bar restaurant works and um, how one gets started in that business. And so maybe you can give us a kind of a brief background and I'll just kind of jump in and interrupt you. Okay. Uh, so again, my name is Richard. I uh, currently own um, a business uh, close, Diablo, and the uh, CEO of Urban Cantina Group, which is the co- the owner of that. Uh, my previous history, I was in operations and a uh, variety of different positions, director for a national retailer, sports and athletic company for the last 20 years prior to getting to, into this business. Uh, over the last few years, decided to make a change. Uh, obviously, re- restaurant and retail really kind of flow together from an operational customer service standpoint. And providing the service and the quality product that they're looking for. So it was an easy transition to that area and kind of doing something for myself from that end. Awesome. So let's talk about 20 years getting high up in the corporate structure of a national retailer in the athletic wear world. Um, you were based on the West Coast always, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, my, my main focus was in the field level. So as a director, we oversaw um, basically half the country as a Western region. Um, worked in a variety of different positions from an operational standpoint to HR, uh, overseeing 500 plus stores uh, and close to a half a billion dollars in, in sales. So what made you decide that enough is enough? I'm tired of this sort of corporate. Uh, a variety of different factors. Um, a great company. I love the business. Obviously, you wouldn't be in a company for 20, almost 20 years if you didn't love it. A fantastic environment. Um, but it was just time to make a change for myself. Also, for, for me to move up the into the corporate ladder, I probably had to go either to New York or Florida. And at this point, um, you know, my career wasn't really something that I was willing to do. Uh, you know, my spouse <clears throat> had a, has a great job in, in the in, in the state, so she, you know, it was, it was really a challenge to make a decision: do I want to move to New York or Florida? And over the last few years, I just made a decision that we were going to stay in California, and, and you know, we could continue to be in the position I was, um, enjoying the, the life, the, the sports culture, and, and being around the environment that I love to be in. Um, but it was time to make a change a few years ago, and, and really started branching out and looking at businesses, um, and obviously restaurant retail, our restaurant really kind of and bars really kind of came along. Because as a younger uh, individual, I studied culinary arts when I was in school, um, and kind of kind of going back to my roots. Um, not necessarily being in the kitchen anymore, because that's kind of where um, you know I have a quality uh, chef. But really, kind of getting back on the floor and, and engaging the customers from that end, because that's what I really like to do. Awesome, yeah. And so, a lot of people, like um, even you know my own father, it seems like uh, so many people that I know say, you know, one day. I'm going to do it. I'm going to open up my own place, a bar, restaurant, both, whatever. And uh, and so you actually did that. And, and maybe you can describe the steps um, from like a process. Like how how did you raise funds? How did you select a location and a concept? How did how did you go about that whole process? Um, so I, once I uh, made it, you know, I left my <clears throat> previous uh, position, really kind of made a decision you know, what I want to do. I explored, obviously, other corporate positions, um, some of the larger athletic companies uh, out there for, you know, 
reasons, just because I was used to that business, but also exploring the restaurants. So we started looking in certain uh, areas closer to, you know, northern L.A., um, you know, reaching out to different brokers and them showing us different properties. So broker, a broker of what? Uh, so they have business brokers. So you would reach out. There's there's specific brokerage, just like you would do if your house, your house, you have a, a, a broker for a house or, or a real estate agent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually specific real estate agents and brokers for businesses, for whether it's the bar industry, restaurants, or retail, whatever you're looking. Whether you're just looking to lease a property or you're looking to straight out purchase a, an actual previous business. Got it. Okay. So. Um, a lot of that research was done on my own, uh, using obviously internet and different tools that you have out there. So you can do a lot of research on yourself to, uh, for yourself just to find out, you know, is it viable for me? What's the cost? Um, and then from there, you can reach out to a broker and, and partner with them if you if you have specific needs, if you're looking for a specific location. Um, my, mine was pretty broad, so I was able to do a lot of it on my own. Um, I didn't have a specific area like I needed to buy a business in Silver Lake or I needed to buy a business in North Hollywood um, just because it doesn't bother me commuting to a certain area. <clears throat> really, it was finding the right location, uh, the right business model because I was purchasing an exi- existing business. So can you describe that? So. What do you mean by right location, right business model? So uh, any demographics or, or location search when you're looking at whether it's a retail store and use, using my history from previous uh, positions, um, when we would look for a, a location for a new store, obviously looking at the demographics, uh, the income in the area, what is the trends in the market, uh, is that the right space, obviously cost of lease, um, you want to make sure that when you're looking, the lease is probably the, one of the most important things when you're looking at a business, whether you're buying and or starting a new lease, because that's, uh, other than payroll, that's the largest part of your your, your, in, your business, your expenses. Um, so when you're looking at the lease, is it, is it viable for us? You know, not signing a lease where, you know, in five years you're spending 20% of your income on a lease. How you know? much should you spend? In most restaurant industries, in most restaurants, you probably want to be between eight and no more than 10, um, give or take. You percent, know, of, of percent of percent revenue? Of or? Revenue, yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, you have to balance. So if you're buying an existing business, what is the what is their current volume? What is their what are their revenue intake? And then from there, what does their lease look like? And then how long is their lease currently? Do they have one year left and then it's going to go to a market adjusted lease? Um, which then you could, you know, you could go from 8% and all of a sudden the market changes and you're, you're paying 15% of and you your, just your, double the rent on right. you overnight. So you want to look at uh, how long the lease is, what is the history of the, the landlord uh, from a, a lease standpoint? <clears throat> you know, do they, do they have a track record of consistently holding their lease to, you know, the 2%, even, even if the market adjusted, they want to make sure that they have someone in that space where there are some uh, leasees or leasors that, that, basically double your rent overnight, um, triple your rent, depending on the market. And, and obviously that's, that's part of the business. You have to be able to adjust to that. But some landlords make a decision that, hey, I'd rather have my space filled, even though maybe I'm making a little less because I'd rather not be empty for six months or a year sometimes. Sure. So those are some big factors you want to take a, into consideration. Talk about location. Um, when I looked at a location, I really wanted a dense area with walking traffic, um, making sure that, that the, the community has a lot of restaurants where they're constantly full or there's just a nice flow of business. You can find a, a nice restaurant, you know, maybe in the outskirts, but if you're not getting the traffic that you need, um, it's a lot of promotions, a lot of, a lot of advertising to get those people to come. Where, so would a walkability score be something that you're looking at there? Yeah, or how, walk, how are you assessing that? Walkability score, uh, research, um, 
making sure when you're doing research or location, get out, get out, get out in the daytime, get out in the nighttime, see what it looks like. It may be busy during the day because it's, you know, maybe it's a business park or there, there's a lot of uh, daytime traffic because of the businesses around there. But, you know, at six, seven o'clock at night, all the businesses are gone and you have no night business when mm -hmm. generally that should be your busiest time of the day. Mm -hmm. So you really have to balance out, you know, what kind of business I'm looking for. You know, is is it right? <clears throat> Example. Uh, historically downtown after six o'clock downtown used to be it would used to be a ghost town yep. or now that you have the influx of, of residents it's changing to become more of again more of a nighttime area so mm -hmm. you know downtown changes the same thing in, in this area in, in silver lake area it's a very localized area a lot of walking um, a lot of people that, that <clears throat> live in the area work in either film industry music so their their hours are different so there's no consistent like there's a big lunch hour a big evening hour it's just consistent throughout the day obviously dinners is always going to be more so you really want to get out uh, and and sit in front of the location that you're thinking of, of leasing or buying and really look at the traffic the customer clientele um, what is your demographics while you can look you can collect that information while you're in the business to really sit down and look at what is my demographics is it 25 to 35 is it that 30 plus year old is it families uh, and really what kind of business you're focusing on got it okay and then so i guess two sort of follow-up questions there uh one is how did you decide on the kind of cuisine and offerings you wanted to provide okay. um and then uh and then I want to talk about how you selected and, and thought about, you know, buying the existing business. But but first, how did you select the kind of cuisine and, and all of that? Um, so it was fairly wide open. What I was looking for is more of a, a, a gastro style restaurant w with a little bit of sports influence. So, you know, it was more casual. I didn't want to jump into a fine dining uh, experience right away going into my first business. Um, it, you know, from a fine dining standpoint, there's a lot of intricacies in that in that area where you have to make sure that everything is, is you know, from the back end, the front. And not that we don't look at everything uh, specifically in our business now, but it's a much more casual uh, environment where people can come and have a little more fun, you know, with, with our business, can watch some sports. Um, if they don't want to watch sports, it's, you know, the, the sound's not on, it's music in the background. It's really casual just to kind of get the, the flow of the business and really kind of build the operational side that I was looking for. Um, but from a cuisine standpoint, um, nothing specific. Obviously, I've been I lived in L.A. and I lived around Hispanic communities my whole life. So it's very comfortable for me to come in and, and run a, a, a Latin restaurant. Um, and, and, you know, that's what I eat all day. You know, live, it, growing up in the valley and, and in the, the east side of the valley, it's very Hispanic. So really comfortable and, and easy for transition. And it could have been, you know, it could have been a burger joint. It just depends. Well, so that's, I guess that's part of my question. How uh, did you think about, uh, did you think about this is uh, a type of cuisine that will probably appeal, will have mass appeal? Or was it just, I like eating this kind of food, so this is what I want to make? Um, I think from a, from a food standpoint, I think it's, it's you want to have a broad um, appeal to everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, when you start to focus on a specific area where it's very, I guess, centralized. And those are where you're getting the high, high end, your, your, your fine dining. And that's, that's a great area to be in. Um, but it's a really challenging area because if, if, you know, you have a niche and only 5% of the people are comfortable eating that food, you have to have the best, best out there. So it has to be really, you know, focused on that where, you know, where we are, Latin food is, is it's a, it's, you know, 
it's everywhere. So it, it in, and that's that's another challenge is, is that it is so prevalent. It's how do you separate yourselves from the rest of the market as well, right? So we have a million. Yeah, there's taqueria. Right so how do you separate yourselves? So we look at again is is really focusing on the demographics. I think um, creating an environment where that 25 to 35 year old, which is our core customer, is comfortable coming in. Um, the way we have our, our business set up is it's counter service. So, you know, they come in, they can order, they can leave a tab open, they can go sit down. They don't feel like they're getting pressured every few minutes by a waiter. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's a much more casual environment. I think that's the way majority of our customers kind of lean towards. They just want to kind of come in, order when they want to order. They don't want to be, you know, are you okay? Do you need something else? And then when they're ready to leave, they close out their tab if they have it open. If not, they've already paid and they, they take off. So I think that really focuses on that, that I guess, millennial clientele that doesn't want to, you know, wants to go to a nice restaurant, but doesn't necessarily want to be hassled mm -hmm. while they're enjoying their food. They just want to engage. You know, maybe they just order a cocktail and they sit there for two hours, very European style, um, where, you know, if you go to Europe, it, it, a waiter comes over once every 20 minutes at the most. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes for, for uh, you know, Americans who don't travel overseas, they're not, they're, they're like, well, why isn't someone coming over every five minutes to check on my water or check mm -hmm. on this? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very different kind of atmosphere. You kind of allow to engage your, your, the person you're with or your friends. You know, you're not worried about, do I need to order something? Do I need to get ready to place, place my order? I got to look at the menu right away. You know, you can just sit down when you're ready to go to the counter, place your order, and then you sit back down and enjoy your night. Yeah, I, uh, I can certainly appreciate that. What about uh, the selection criteria for you bought this existing business or uh, you bought this woman out of, of her business. And so whenever you're buying someone else's business, you probably think, well, if your business is so great or if everything, if the setup's so awesome, why are you selling it? So how did you go through that due diligence process and, and how did you go about the deal making in general? So um, from a due diligence standpoint, that, that's probably key if you're buying an existing business. Is, and it's a good question is why is this person wanting to sell? What is, the, what is their motivation to sell? Um, so you have to look at a few key factors. Um, this individual, previous owner, had set up a, a great business. That, um, you know, from the way the structure, the, the the store or the restaurant looked, the floor plan, the product and the quality of the food was there. Um, you know, engaging that previous owner of kind of why they're wanting to leave, what's the reasoning. Um, you know, for her, it was more of a family thing. She was just recently had another child. And she had a, a, a daughter that was seven years old. So it was really basically the five years that she owned the business, she'd been away from the, the children and really wanted to spend more time with the family. So that's one key factor is understanding where they're coming from. And then from the other, it's the financial side. You know, taking a look at, at uh, the P&L, where, you know, making sure you're getting all the information. Because you can get a P&L from a previous business that isn't always great. <laughs> I've looked at a few other restaurants and bars, um, especially small businesses. They don't structure their, their P&Ls like a corporate um, structure. Luckily for, for me, um, once I found this business, she had done that already. Her, her, her husband and that worked in, is a, a corporate trainer for, for a large uh, restaurant group. So they, they knew the process of understanding and making sure that our business is built for someone to walk in. If they decided to sell it, it's easy to transition. I can look at the P&L. I can look at the profit and loss. I can see where all the expenses are, whereas some of the small business I've looked at, looked at prior, you know, a lot of it was – Cash wasn't rung into the register um, because, you know, you don't have to report cash or whatever that may be. Mm -hmm. uh, so there wasn't a really a line. So when I, you know, was talking to a couple of one of the other business, one of the other bars I was looking at, you know, the, they did okay business, but I couldn't see it on paper because 
30% of their business was cash and they were taking, they, they weren't ringing that in so they didn't have to report it. So from there I could, it was only their word and I don't take anybody's word when it comes to money. <laughs> <laughs> so I really wanted to make sure if I was taking them to a business that, that the, the P&L, the, it was set up like a corporate structure so I could easily identify what were the opportunities, where did I need to focus my, my time on um, when I came into the business, uh, et cetera. Got it. And so then how did the negotiation work? They had a specific price they had in mind? So they had a price they had in mind. Um, you know, coming in, looking at the price. Look, you generally want to, for, for restaurants, it's generally three to four times um, profit. Um, just a base, that's a base structure. I mean, it could be more, it could be less, depending on where, where you're at. And what's a profit margin that's reasonable? For uh, in the restaurants, usually between 7 and 10%. Okay. Um, it can be lower. Again, it's all going to based on on like rent is a huge piece, mm-hmm. labor, mm-hmm. you know, those things uh, you can really cut into. Do you do, does the owner is the owner there? Because obviously they're not there, they're paying more payroll. So you have to look at all those factors as you're looking through the P and L. Is like when you're talking to the previous owner, how often are you here? Are you paying yourself a salary? Are you not paying yourself? Um, you know, what do the hours look like? So really, kind of dialing that in as you're looking at the P and L. So, but you know, seven percent is kind of an average. For, for restaurants, uh, and um, it can be more. I think, it, it, again, you know, I look at, at rent as a huge be- deal, because if you can shave $3,000 a month off your rent, you know, and find the right spot compared to a, a spot that may be down the street, then you're definitely gonna save yourself a lot more. Got it, and it's pretty uncommon for most of these businesses to own the, the real estate that they're in. Yeah, unless it's a, 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 unless it's a family business that's been in place for a long time. It's, you know, you look at, especially in LA, you know, you to buy a property, a restaurant property, you're looking at a million dollars at least in, mm-hmm. in an area that you'd want to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, our building is is part of apartments. It's a it's a multi-use uh, area, so you know, for me to own the land would be you know eight million, <laughs> <laughs> and it's not really worth to run a, a restaurant. Right. It'd be, it'd sure. be more of just focusing on the the, the rent part of that side. So um, it's really hard for you. Know, you can go in um, if you can find space, and you can find smaller towns. You definitely can own the land in, in smaller areas, if you know, or, or in the, own the property. But in the larger, larger cities, if you're just looking to, to run restaurants. It's you're definitely probably just going to lease. Got it. Okay. And so you're looking at a three to four x uh, on the profit, right? As far as the the price to purchase the business, and that's buying out the remainder of the lease or, or taking over management of the lease, correct? And there's a liquor license, which yeah, liquor I also license. never really understand because it varies so much. So what, what so is, when you, you when you're negotiating that? Basically, that your breakdown is going to look at, you're, you're going to look at a few things. <clears throat> Obviously, the liquor license. Um, depending on the city, liquor licenses can go from a few thousand dollars to a, a couple hundred thousand dollars because it's based on the county. So as a county of L.A., obviously, we have a large <clears throat> population, so there's much more licenses available, so the price isn't as high. Um, it can easily transition from a beer and wine is probably the easiest one to get. That's probably going to cost you between five and $10,000. Um, a full liquor license with a restaurant, uh, probably in the sixty dollars to $80,000 range, depending on, on again, the market. Uh, you know, market's going to flux. Uh, depending you know from there do they add them every so often too as the population increases? yeah as the population grows they're going to add and then uh, how do they decide who to give it to is it an auction or uh so there are auctions that you have out there they, they do release um you can apply for it and then from there you know pay the legal fees to, to upgrade your your license if it's available um, but you can do an what they call auctions so you put your name into a, basically a raffle 
um, every year. Mm. They'll they'll have a certain amount that they have they can raffle off, mm. and you go from there. So that that's kind of a lottery. So why not always just do that and then sell it to somebody who actually wants it? A lot it? of a lot of there's businesses that actually simply do that. <laughs> <laughs> so there's businesses it's that like trolls yeah, squatting on it, domains. And yeah, stuff. basically that's what it, they're buying domains. So they there's a lot of businesses that, that that are out there just selling and purchasing licenses. Um, back and forth from from different businesses, wow. um, and then 48s are, are, are full liquor license, no food, nothing. Those are probably those are the hardest ones to get, um, and those can cost you know excess of a hundred thousand easy. And then there's certain markets if you go to like Central Coast or smaller areas, the uh, full liquor license can cost you two hundred plus thousand. Wow, and you know we we've talked about uh, on this podcast before about how um, the dosages and the way that different chemicals and drugs are introduced into the body matters. So obviously one of the greatest examples of this that people are familiar with is hard liquor versus a beer that society has seemed to have, or at least American society has seemed to consistently regard hard liquor as being, well, literally harder or more severe, more restricted than having a beer. And is, is that kind of the implicit assumption that that you see as well is that if you're serving hard liquor that you're more liable to have people that are overserved or overdoing it or yeah i think there's i mean from a from a consumption standpoint you, you drink a beer it's it's similar to drinking just one cocktail but i think you know as you drink beer you, you tend to see, tend to get fuller quicker so you're less likely to drink more um, and again, liquor, a lot of people react differently to, to, to li different liquors. You know, some people are whiskey kind of is the ones that set them off. Tequila does. It, it just depends on the individual, but that's always kind of been that way. When you look at our, our, our history, you know, prohibition and, um, you know, moonshine, et cetera. Those are all, those are all things that are still things we deal with. Obviously prohibition isn't around anymore, but there's moonshine. People are still hustling, you know, moonshine back in the country because you know it's it's easier for them to get it's easier for them to produce um where beer takes a lot longer to produce from that end so i think i think um you know and again it goes back to you know politicians and and who lobbies what and who has the more money and yeah <laughs> you know and it, it, it constantly it's an ebb and flow um from there but i think from a liquor standpoint and beer it's the same thing it's they're really it's the same thing someone's going to get drunk on beer someone's going to drunk on liquor um, I think we just figure we focus on the liquor side because it's more of an evening uh, aspect. Usually mm -hmm. people aren't drinking liquor during the day as much. Mm -hmm. You might have a beer during the day. Um, so that that's that kind of evil side that, you know, you might from, you know, from whatever people's perspectives are. So you think there's more of like a moralization attached to hard liquor and, and less of uh, just a likelihood that th that someone drinking liquor is going to be more problematic than someone drinking beer or vice versa. People drinking liquor would consider more problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's more of a mo it, 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 when you come liquor or just any drug. It's it's a, a lot of it's driven on morals or 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 you know religious morals or however you want to explain it. Um, I think that's where most of the restrictions come from. Is that while we look at different things, prohibition didn't work for for alcohol. Uh, there's people still making cock beer and wine and and liquor and smuggling it in just like prohibition on drugs doesn't work. You know, when we see it, we look at societies now that we've uh, especially in certain states legalizing marijuana, you look at Portugal, you know, basically decriminalizing all drugs and focusing on uh rehabilitation and and instead of incarceration, mm -hmm. um crime has gone down, uh, less the people are less likely to use drugs because 
it's all it's just like anything when we're kids or uh, even adults if we say you can't have it we're gonna find a way to get it or you know we're gonna do something obviously illegal to get it in a lot of cases where if it's legal it's it's you know it's it's a uh, structure where people are going in and, and doing it the right way. Yeah, it's not as cool or rebellious. I mean, yeah. the, so a question that I ask uh, everybody on the show is, uh, do you think that all drugs should be legal or decriminalized? I think it should be decriminalized. I think we should focus on uh, rehabilitation and, and abusers, you know, for their health, because that's, you know, it's a very small portion of our society. Um, just like anything, people who smoked weed for 60 years, you know, grandparents and grandma and, you know, they've been smoking, they're fine. Um, example, one of my, you know, my uncle was probably one of the largest architects in the, in the United States at one point. And I, I, that's the first person I ever saw smoke weed when I was a kid. So, you know, it, it doesn't, I think drugs are, it's just like anything, alcohol, people are going to abuse anything. Mm -hmm. There's some people that are going to abuse it and there's some people that aren't, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, I think there are certain drugs that probably shouldn't be on the market, you know, the PCP and things like that. But your everyday, you know, marijuana, I don't know, I say cocaine, you know, LSD, all those things are, are we, we're able to manage those things as a society if we wanted to. Mm -hmm. and, and it also reduces the crime because you're not having, uh, you know, individuals from other countries flooding the market with, with drugs. There are always going to be some underground, even with, with marijuana being legalized currently, you can still buy it from your local person if you wanted to. Sure. I mean, do you see that as part of um, as part of your business that uh, because it's open on the weekends at night and, you know, alcohol is being served? Do you ever encounter people trying to sell drugs in, in your establishment or anything? Luckily like that? not, because it's it is a restaurant. So, you know, we, we you know, we still have families and kids that come into the restaurant. So but I do see it a lot of other bars. You know, you go in the bars and there's always someone maybe slinging slinging something mm. um, on the side or whatever. And, you know, people going in the bathrooms and, it, you know, it's unfortunate that they have to do that. I think, you know, because it be, creates more of a, you know, a seedy side of the uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> of the industry. Um, but it happens. So whether we're blind to it or not, it happens in pretty much any bar that you go out, you can go in in L.A. or, or someone's going to be slinging um, something. Sure. Um, obviously not ours because it's a restaurant. So, you know, yeah, there's people hanging out, drinking and, and that. But I haven't seen anything in our restaurant just because it's, it's again, it's more of a fan. It does have families and stuff that come in. So people do respect that, I think, to a certain extent. And if you saw it, you would just be like, hey, get out of here. Yeah, I mean, you just like, hey, that's not not something you need to have here. Get out. Yeah. You know? Have you had to forcibly remove anybody from the, like anybody uh, who was, well, came in too drunk or anything like that? or um, Only one or two, but it wasn't really forcibly. We just, you know, let them know that we weren't serving anymore. Uh, we'd ask them to leave. And there, there's some amount of training that every bartender has to go right. through. How do you, what is, what is that assessment really? It's uh, like well, there's, uh, what, in LA you have to specifically go through what they call star training. Mm -hmm. So all the bartenders, owners, everything, anybody who serves alcohol has to go through star training and understanding obviously how to ID, how to identify, you know, someone who is maybe overly inebriated, um, when to stop serving them, et cetera. Um, and then from there, you know, removal of someone, it, that's kind of extreme. Uh, again, that can happen at a late night bar where it's people are, you know, there to party and have a good time. Uh, they usually have a bouncer there uh, to do those individual uh, do that. But a restaurant, if someone's usually, you know, if they are inebriated, you just, you just kind of politely ask them and kind of, nudge them along uh, please don't take a wild swing at me <laughs> but it, it does happen i've I, you know um not, luckily since the last couple of years i've owned the business we haven't had any of that but the uh, you know some of our our managers or assistant managers that i have have had people swing on them before um 
you know, and that's in the past. I think it also depends on the, the area that you're in, you know, what people expect out of a restaurant. If, mm-hmm. if it's known as a rowdy bar, it's going to be a rowdy bar. So you sure. kind of, if you come in as a bartender at a rowdy bar, you kind of know how to manage those things. And you guys also aren't open super late. You guys close at like midnight. Yeah, yeah. we're not open late, so we're not open until 2 a.m., which, which really doesn't, I don't think, matters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the later you get, the obviously, the more people can be drunk. And it, But it's also identifying those people when they walk in. Like, I'm not going to serve them. And you let them know, hey, you know, doesn't look like you need any more alcohol we're not going to serve you we'll serve you food let you sober up <laughs> uh but you, you need to make sure your your team is trained on that so it's really identifying them you know if they're slurring their speech they're falling asleep they're, they're wobbling you know when they're walking in they're staggering do you just as soon as you see them you just say hey we'll serve you some food but you know we're not going to serve you an alcohol sure and and then how do you go about uh increasing profit per square foot um, and sort of running your analytics and also th- how do you balance that with you don't necessarily want to overserve people uh, alcohol either even though it could be a high profit margin item so how do you balance all that uh, that's probably been the most challenge in, in this industry is, is really finding that sweet spot uh, of the, both the marketing getting the foot traffic that you need um, you know looking at them and again this year you know really I kind of identified that the market is changing a little bit from our demographics. It does seem like it's shifting to be a little bit of an older crowd compared to, you know, say five years ago. Silver Lake was, you know, an up and coming market. So you had a lot of influx of younger individuals. Um, It's become a lot more expensive to live in this area. So. But isn't that good for you? It is, it is because you look at the, the younger crowd always ends up spending more money. Even though they don't have it. (laughs) Even though they don't have it. Uh, uh, Well, while older, you know, individuals are my age or whatever may spend more per ticket, they're less likely to go out more often. Sure. So I think that that's a, a challenge right now where we're looking at is, is there is a slight change in the in the, the age demographics in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we accommodate to that? But also looking at what kind of marketing we have out there, um, what kind of things are driving the customers within the business. Um, but from a sales standpoint, when you talk about adding, you know, is, is there's a lot of different ways you can build your, your, your average ticket, whether it doesn't have to always be alcohol, obviously food, again, <clears throat> you know, making sure that when someone is being rung up because of our counter service that my, all my associates or my whoever's bringing up, they're, they're continually adding on, you know, making sure that they're building the sale, um, mm-hmm. asking to leave a tab open. That, that's a huge deal because if someone leaves a tab open, they're more likely to add, add something else to their, their, their item, where if they just close it out, they're like, oh, I'm done time to go mm-hmm. so asking to leave tabs open those are all things that you can do to continue to build that average ticket um, from that end and then doing different events to try to drive just traffic to more excitement um, <clears throat> you can you can rely on your laurel or rely on what you have and just have the restaurant run as it is but to create excitement for people to come come in back regularly like oh you know so we do art shows or they have you have a comedy night or whatever you're allowed to do based on your cup your um uh, certain area, you can only have certain things within your restaurant. You may not be able to have karaoke. It's based on your cup. Uh, what is a cup? What do you mean? Your cup, conditional use permit. Okay. So each restaurant has a conditional use permit that allows them to do certain things. Um, so example like ours, we can have music, we can have um, art shows, things like that, uh, but we can't have karaoke. Who decides that? Uh, the city does. There's just somebody so you, in the you, L.A. County. When you apply for your, your license, your, your liquor license, you have to go to a city council meeting um, and, uh, and say what you want to do. You're like, I want to be open till 2 a.m. or I want to be open till 1 a.m. They'll decide if that's okay or you can only be open till midnight. 
But based on what else is around you, presumably, what else is around they you? don't just say ask you to sing on the spot and say, "Oh no, you guys can't no, no, do karaoke." You submit what you would like. You haven't been practicing. <laughs> you submit what you like to do. Um, so let's say you know, uh, <clears throat> submit the cup. Like oh, we want to be open till two a.m. Well, the city may come back and say, "Well, you can only be open till twelve because your building faces a residential area." Um, that's as late as you know the residential. There's a certain laws. That if your business faces a certain residential, you can only be open certain times. Um, so there's a lot of different factors that go into that. Also, you know, people within the area they may not like maybe the previous business that was there. Mm -hmm. So you may get pushback. Maybe you have nothing to do with the previous owners, or if you're starting a new business. Is this an open meeting too? Yeah. So, so people can show up and yeah. so say down the street can show up and say I don't want them to be open and people only show up to complain at these things Basically. i would imagine i was you know I've, I've seen these signs around because you have to post these notices i didn't realize it was for the the cup the conditional use permit but yeah, that makes have, sense you have to post um saying you know it's a, a either a business change generally the, the the cup is already in place if you're purchasing business they're all cup was already in place but if you want to alter it you have to have another yeah, then here. you have to reapply for it so at this point we can only be open till you know midnight uh anyway uh, anyway but if we wanted to, we'd have to go reapply for it, and there's a cost to that. So you also have to decide, is is the biz, is it worth us to be open an extra couple of hours? Is the cost to have the kitchen open, to have labor? Or do we normally see most of our customers leaving at a certain time? We just got to maximize the time that they're there. And how how do you go about the doing the books and the analytics, and you look at what the most popular items are, and you back all the way out to ingredients? and like How do you what kind of data would you need to see to make a change to your menu, for instance? So I like to look at the analytics. I mean, obviously, you're looking at it every day and every week. Um, but generally, I like to see a, a three-month pattern. What I do by I look at every, like, dial down every quarter because I think you got to give time for certain things to, to trend out um, and see where we go. So when we look at bringing in either new, new items or new cocktails or whatever it is, we'll come out with a specific menu. And we'll let that run for you know 90 days and see at that point what's trending, what's selling well. Um, do we need to make an adjustment? And then from there, I don't like to make adjustments every six months because I think if you're changing your menu, at least your core menu, too often, your customers your will start to get confused. Mm -hmm. And if there's items that they're used to um, and you change them without any reason because you oh, I just want to update the menu all the time mm -hmm. uh, because you, you're fidgety or whatever you want to do, you really start to lose those core customers. I think you look at your core items, look at your top sellers. Obviously, you look at your bottom ones. Why are those ones not being are, are not selling? Is it either maybe it's the name that we've placed on on the menu? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is a factor. Uh, is it an item where it's that that specific cocktail or, or food item is really trending down because the market's trending down in that area? So you have to look at also find out, walk around the restaurants, go eat some restaurants around there, see what they're selling and what's not. Wants doing well. Talk to the, the, those waiters as well because that, that, that can help you trend. But I think um, just like in any business, when I, when I looked at my previous you know world, is top sellers and bottom sellers start there. Top sellers, how can I how can I push those more because those are selling and usually they're higher higher ticket items. And the bottom sellers, why aren't they pushing? Um, you're reviewing with your team, you know, hey, these are our top bottom items. Let's see if everybody talks about them a little more. Do they go up? Mm -hmm. um, and if they don't, then then it's probably something you need to change out from the menu. Mm -hmm. uh, I think those are some key areas that you want to look at. Gotcha. And then as far as uh, how many core items, how did you decide how big to have your menu? How did you sort you of... You can get pretty crazy. We've all gone to the restaurant that has 19-page menu. Right. <laughs> uh, and you're like, how is that profitable? I, it, it, 
It's usually not because <laughs> there's, a, you know, they always say 20% of your items is 80% of your sales. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a pretty standard in any, any business, whether it's restaurants or retail or whatever. Pareto efficiency. Yeah. So you want to look at, at, okay, so our 20%, these are our core items. What in those items, whether it's food, what ingredients in those can we utilize in our other items to maximize our, our, our profit standpoint. Because if we're sure. using, utilizing similar product and other items and just maybe redesigning it into, for something different, mm-hmm. um, you can obviously drive your profit up that way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, we try to, our, try to keep it pretty simple. I think the rule is five, mm-hmm. right? Five to six, five appetizers, five main menus, five sides. Okay. Yeah. You, know, um, you know, just to keep it simple, mm-hmm. I think that when you have 20 different items on the menu, uh, it can be pretty, pretty confusing. We're, you know, right now is something where we're, we're, I'm deciding whether we expanded our cocktails last year or the beginning of the year um, to really kind of drive some new, new product out there. And, and do we dial it back a few now just to kind of clean it up a little bit um, to see? Because there is some where people look at it and it takes them a little while to decide on a cocktail. You know, you want it, you want someone to be able to look at a menu and be like, okay, I want that. You know, instead of spending 20 minutes to looking over every single item, so you want it quick, easy to decide. And I think I think a good rule is is the five rule. So whatever section you have, whether it's appetizers, mains, uh, whatever you, you know, if you have your burger joint, you know, sides, burgers, you want to do five different burgers, five different sides, and just keep it simple from there. Probably no more than 20 items on a menu is is generally good. Gotcha. Yeah. So I had no idea about that rule, but that makes perfect sense. Um, and then uh, I want to get into the cocktail uh, and alcohol uh, buying purchasing pattern. Pattern. But um, before we do that, uh, we talked about the lease being a certain percentage of the uh, overall uh, expenditure. Right. Uh, what expenditure is? you know staff versus uh you know food ingredients and, and what, what's what's that kind of breakdown so your, look like your your other two items are we call it your core core expenses and that's your payroll mm-hmm. and, and your cost of goods right okay uh so generally you want to be and then everybody is every restaurant's going to be different your cost of goods can that's probably the one that fluctuates the most mm-hmm. uh, because if you're going after you know a high end and you're spending you know twelve dollars a pound on whatever item meat or fish that you're getting because you want the top of the best you're going to have to adjust your your cost of goods uh, <clears throat> generally i like to look at it is that probably about 58 percent of your total cost should be between your labor and your cost of goods okay um, and that's going to fluctuate again it may be less in certain states because obviously in california we have to pay minimum wage plus tips mm-hmm. where in a lot of states you pay below minimum wage plus tips mm-hmm. so that's going to fluctuate your, your cost of payroll mm-hmm Payroll should be, uh, I like to calculate a payroll around 27 to, to 28 percent mm-hmm. of your, not including the owner's salary or, mm-hmm. or, you know, from there. And then your cost of goods. Um, for us, we like to be under 25 percent, mm-hmm. um, where there's some, some business, some restaurants are up to 40 percent mm-hmm. for the cost of goods mm-hmm. just because of the product they're using. Mm-hmm. We use all high-end product, but we were able to use a lot of different similar product and other, other items mm-hmm. and, and be able to stretch those out. Got it. Okay. And it also goes back to having a, a quality back-end manager or chef that knows how to order, and they're just not ordering willy-nilly just because they can. Right, and you're not over-ordering or right. under-ordering. Mm-hmm. And, um, That's the big thing is uh, over-ordering. Uh, we order every day. So every night, our chef, our, our sous chef goes in and, and does the, the, the order, and 
based on what we sold the day or the, the, the evening before. Um, so it's it's a daily uh, process where some wow. restaurants may like, well, we're just going to buy it for the whole week. Well, you may have a busy day week and you may have not have a busy week. So you're not really adjusting for the business. Well, yeah, that's that's really frequent. Yeah. Um, what about alcohol? So alcohol, we look at as part of cost of goods. That goes right. into the 25%. Right, but um, frequency of ordering and Frequency all that. orders, what we do and, and, and what we decided is that we order monthly now. Um, so we look at, we look, take our trend. I take a six-week trend of what we're selling. Uh, it's really more of the beer side because the, the liquor can adjust. Uh, but we do a, we order based on monthly and or quarterly. Mm-hmm. So we'll take a six-week trend. For example, we're selling, uh, I don't know, let's say 300 bottles of Modelo mm-hmm. in, in six weeks. Mm-hmm. Divide that out, figure out what, what is by week, and then we'll order for four weeks uh, ahead. Mm-hmm. So we're always have, we have four weeks of inventory generally on hand. But you look at the trailing six we look weeks. look at the trend line, yeah. So we'll, right now, beginning of, <clears throat> beginning of the quarter, we place the order for the month, and then we'll do another order for the next month. Um, from a liquor standpoint, uh, that is weekly, except for our, our well items, our, so our, our tequila and our mezcal that we use for a lot of our well our cocktails we'll order that again monthly as well but the general back bar is done on a weekly basis as we need and then making sure we hit um, you also have a minimum from a lot of the vendors or a lot of distributors so you have a minimum that you need to order so we may maybe out of a bottle for a week because you don't hit that minimum you mm. don't, you know you only have two bottles you need to order until next week when you went through the rest of it so how many vendors and distributors are you dealing with I guess just first on the alcohol side even from the alcohol side right now we have they are probably six so two uh, main liquor distributors uh, the, the two national ones southern and young's um, and then from a beer side that that can be between four and, and five mm-hmm. the beer distributors there's a lot more there's craft beer so you have uh, stone as a distributor you have a lot of other small distribution uh, businesses along with your big ones like harbor that does all your constellation brands like Modelo, corona victoria gotcha and it seems like on the brand side, these distributors try to get the brands to lock into an exclusive with them. But Correct. on the consumer side or the bar restaurant side, you can go to as many distributors as you as feel you like. Want, you, you have to look at, again, a lot of them have the minimum. So, you know, if you can, having 10 distributors doesn't do any good. You sure. Know, just because you want that one bottle of tequila or whiskey because that's, you know, from this one vendor, well... You buy it for the whole year or something? Yeah. So you have to look at, is it worth me going to this one small distributor to get the one bottle I need? Or can I find something, a substitute, or live without it? So um, you really want to stick to your your few core uh, distributors because generally those are the ones you're going to order 99% of from. So if you don't need something from somebody else, try to find something that they have similar in those core distributors. Are there any brands in the alcohol side of things that – do direct deliveries that don't use distributors? There are there are some ones that like Park Street uh, is a, is a kind of a direct distributor. Um, What's that? I'm not familiar with that. So it's it's just a direct distributor. So different brands will work with them, and you just place an order, and they'll just overnight it to you. So it's oh, not, so it's like an e-commerce. Yeah, it's like, like an e-commerce. I mean, you order through the re- the, the the brand representative or, or um, that whoever manages those cor- different brands that they have, and it goes through. And then it gets just delivered. Whereas, like a Southern, you order through the rep, and then the Southern truck comes once a week. And it's probably cheaper to get the truck to deliver it than to get it shipped to you, I would imagine. Uh, well, the same. You know, it's like $5 for those. So it's not that complicated. So it's getting easier to order from those smaller vendors now hmm. um, than it was in the past. So mm-hmm. there's not as much, um, I guess, 
consolidation like there used to be where you know it was kind of controlled by three or four distributors um when you look in the old days yeah yeah so it's it's becoming a lot a lot spread out but that also because based on state and state laws and, and alcohol laws yeah super fragmented you know, and different yeah you, you look at like wine the, it's hard to get wine transported over state lines in certain areas unless it's through a big distributor and that kind of stuff so and then but some craft beer companies i feel like try to sell directly don't they beer you can do direct um, that, that goes straight that, that's one of those kind of loopholes there there doesn't have to be a distributor through from the from the beer side of it so you can buy a lot of there's a lot of smaller craft brews there's um, a few in LA that do direct uh, distribution it's challenging because they have to have a whole crew for that so it's usually your kind of your not necessarily large but kind of that medium size that do a lot of distribution that way until they get to a little bit bigger then they go t- through the other brands got it so like what would be in a, like is Ballast Point? I mean, they got acquired recently. Yeah, they're but through. They're through Ace. Uh, a, a good example, which they're just switching now, is is El Segundo Brewing okay. Company. Uh, okay. They're they're self distributed. Um, who else is self distributed? Lincoln, which is out of Burbank. A lot of this kind of mid range ones. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really easy for them once they get to with a distributor because you have a distributor. They if they're going to different accounts, they're going to say just that beer. Like, hey, we just got this new beer on. Uh, as part of our our group, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, whereas when you're self distributed, you have to have a sale. A speci- you have to have a salesman to go out there on their own. You also have to have a truck to be able to deliver it, whatever weekly. And as uh, obviously the bigger you get, you have to have more trucks. So it's really challenging for for smaller breweries to kind of do that. Got it. Okay. Well then, so switching gears for a second back to your business. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you? How are these uh, businesses typically structured? And as you. Uh, kind of alluded to earlier it sounds like you have an interest in expanding into uh, additional locations how do you finance that how does how does that work um, and is that is there a typical way is there a way that you're thinking about it um, well there's a there, there's a variety of different ways obviously if you have the capital yourself <laughs> um, which luckily I was able to have the capital to go into the business originally the first business without having to pull much much uh, debt onto the business which is good uh, then you have your different varieties you can you go uh, angel investors uh, bringing in um, obviously getting debt whether it's going through a bank or SBA um, you could you could do crowdfunding if you wanted to as well depending mm-hmm. on how, how you want to grow the business mm-hmm. um, for myself looking at expansion I, we structured our business as a corporation so mm-hmm. you know for us to bring on either investors to buy shares um, or bring on debt is probably the two areas that we would look at first and there are restaurant groups that specifically invest in yes. And is that typically debt or equity or? Um, de- usually, it's it's an equity standpoint. Okay. Um, you can go into some some areas of debt, but because of the restaurant industry, that it can be challenging. Usually, you know, they would want equity in the business. So if for some reason, you know, the business, whatever, they could at least get some of the assets out of the business as well down the road. Mm-hmm. Got it. And uh, let's see. I think I, uh, I think I've asked most of the questions that I have. I guess. Um, you know, we have a lot of people who uh, listen to the show who are thinking about different careers, different career paths generally. Do you have any uh, general advice or anything that uh, you would impart if someone wants to get into this sort of hospitality side of the business? Well, I think uh, one of the, the 
the things that's helped me out the most is because of my operational background, um, being able to look at the structure of the business and the organization and how it's set up. And, and from a financial standpoint, being able to understand that side. Um, a lot of people work in the restaurant industry and say they want to open in business, but they really haven't been exposed to all the intricacies of you know, how to manage the profit and loss. How, how do the expenses go? Maybe they just focused on one area. Uh, maybe they're just in the kitchen. You know, maybe they're a great chef, but they won't really understand the full scope of what it takes to to operate the business. And the other piece is if if you're not, especially in our business, if you're not willing to be out in front and socializing with the customers, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't buy the business. You mm-hmm. shouldn't own the business. You can work in a great. You can be. You can be a great chef, but if you're not personable and you're you don't want to be out in front, because you are basically you know you're the spokesperson for your business. You're the one out there. Uh, meeting greeting the customers if there's events going to different events we just recently you know worked with um, the outfest we did their opening gala and you know i was there you know socializing with the the, the guests that were there and really interacting with them if you don't want to do that then you shouldn't own the business you can be a great chef and and probably support a, a great owner um or you gotta you gotta hire the right people uh, and it, it, the other part is, is making sure you understand how to hire. If, if you want to own something, then you better find the right people to, be, to do that for you, which is going to actually, co- you know, add more cost to the business. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, it's you know, quality product, quality marketing, customer interaction, and uh, so it's good business the good, finance. It's the the golden rule even in retail, people, product, and placement, right? People, the right product, and the right place. That's. I think that's well said. I think that's a great place to end it. I. Right. I, uh, I. I don't know how uh, it could even be put better. So thanks so much for joining us, appreciate Rich. It. Really appreciate it.